They were born at the same hour on the same day of the same parents. And they were identical in beauty and talent. Only one was deadly, but the other was not. And I couldn't tell which was which until I found a green purse, a fresh corpse, and a pair of dancing hands. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Dancing Hands. telegram I found stuck in the mail slot when I got back to my office after a long and roundabout day read. Enclosed, find a $50 money order. I want you to investigate a man. A table is reserved for you at the saddle club where I work. Come in time for the second show at 11, important. It was signed Beth Tyler. So at a quarter to 11 with 50 bucks worth of inspiration behind me, I drove over the Coenga Freeway and out Ventura to the saddle club, which pretended to be old English by showing its beams through a flagstone facade. I went in the carefully rough-hewn oak door, and even before my eyes became adjusted to the cozy lack of candle power inside, Neil Redmond, owner and operator of the place, glided toward me, sporting his genial host smile, which tonight was even more forced than usual. How are you, Marlo? It's been a long time. Business a pleasure, Phil. It's always a pleasure to come to the Saddle Club, Neil. I've even got a reservation. You know my food better than that, Marlowe. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just don't let it get rough, will you? Come on, I'll find your table out front. I want you to see this show. A pair of twins in a twin piano act that's sensational. Yeah? Edie and Beth Tyler. Oh, here, how's this? Fine. Incidentally, uh, Edie will be the one on the left. Well, if they're twins, what's the difference? Plenty. Edie may be Mrs. Redmond one of these days. Oh. But you are wanted on the phone, sir. Uh, get the number, George, and I'll call back. This gentleman said you would talk to him, sir. It is uh, Mr. Paul Cedar. Paul Cedar. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Marlowe. Uh, this is important. Redmond reacted to the name Cedar like a punch in the nose. But I figured that was none of my business, which was more than I could say for a flabby, dough-faced character at the next table who followed the nightclub owner all the way out of the room with a pair of watery red eyes, which he deliberately avoided turning in my direction. But at that point, an MC stepped out on the stage, and so I stopped worrying about Flabby in favor of the first look at my client. The Saddle Club is proud to present its second show of the evening, featuring the incomparable piano stylist, Edie and Beth in Dancing Hands. Here they are, ladies and gentlemen. Bring them up. <laughs> Curtains parted on a stage set with an oversized full-length mirror which reflected a grand piano, a black vase of yellow flowers, and a tall brunette with a rye crisp waistline who touched up a piled-high hairdo, put on a pair of long black gloves, checked her hemline, and sat down at the piano. And she ran through an involved arpeggio while her reflection in the mirror looked on in admiration. It was an old but cute routine, and the illusion was perfect because the Tyler twins were practically identical. I took another look at Flabby, whose face was pushed up in a nasty leer. He stood up, dropped his cigarette into his drink, and tossed a crumpled bill down on the table, just as the lights went out for the trick part of the act. On the dark stage, two pairs of purple hands danced over two glowing silver keyboards. It would have been good, except that the pair of hands on the right, which belonged to Beth, suddenly stopped in midair and hit blue notes like a nine-year-old at her first recital. When the lights came up again, my client's face was as white as Middle Sea, and the flabby character oozing a victorious smile was on his way to the door. Well, they wrapped it up fast after that, and Beth ran into the wings, leaving Edie to take the bow alone. The band took over in a hurry and brought things down to normal. So as couples moved down to the dance floor and George the waiter headed for my table, I sat back and waited for that message from my client. Here you are, sir. Compliments of the house. Oh, thanks. Any message with this? No, sir. Just that Mr. Redman had to leave. Oh, thanks, George. I sipped the double scotch and wondered if I should take the initiative and contact my client. When the message I'd been waiting for came, good and loud. I jumped up, shoved my way through the gaping dancers to the dressing room hallway behind the stage. A gang of club personnel was bunched in front of a door, obviously locked, labeled Edie and Beth Tyler. Hey, Hey, what's the matter? It's one of the twins. She's screaming. We got to get in. Uh, that door's locked. I'll break it down. Uh, but get I, I, out of the way. It's Edie. It's Edie. Oh, no, wait, a wait a minute. Hold it. She's all right. 
Clear out and give her a chance. Come on. Outside, everybody. Beat it. That means you too. Come on. Out. Here, Miss Tyler, take it easy. You're all right now. Come on, sit down. Tell me what happened. I don't know for sure. I was worried about Beth. I came back and didn't see her anywhere. And I heard a noise in here. It was dark. I came in and, and someone grabbed me. A man? Yes. I don't know who it was. Mm-hmm. I screamed. He knocked me down. Then locked the door. Got out through the window there. Who are you? Oh, I'm Philip Marlowe, a private detective. Your sister hired me to investigate a guy. I was to meet her here after your number and find out about it. Any idea what's up? No, I can't imagine. But, gee, Beth has been terribly upset ever since last night. Oh? What happened last night? Well, for one thing, my purse was stolen. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see why that should upset her. Gee, there was nothing in it but $12 and my makeup stuff. Where's Beth now, do you know? No. I haven't seen her since she ran off the stage. I'm not even sure she came in here. No, she was here all right. She dropped one of her gloves. You're still wearing both of yours. Where do you girls live? Maybe she went home. Well, Beth has a cottage out on Hazeltine. 4179. You don't live together? How come? Well, gee, Mr. Marlowe, just working with Beth is hard enough. She's so sarcastic. <laughs> okay, I'll wear my thick skin. Uh, one more thing, Miss Tyler. Do you happen to know where Neil went? Neil's gone? Mm-hmm. Gee, that's funny. He always stays till the place closes. Oh, he must be coming right back. I'll take a look. Then I'm going out to see your sister. Sarcasm at all. I spent ten minutes questioning the help on the whereabouts of the boss and got nothing but double talk for answers. So since I was still carrying Beth's glove around with me, I dropped it in my pocket and went outside to my car. I'd opened the door and slid far enough under the wheels so I couldn't back out before I realized that the dough-faced flab was already there on the seat. His right hand wrapped around something blunt and menacing in his sloppy jacket pocket. You better come on in. What are you doing in my car, blubber boy? Don't get sassy now, mister. And the name is Sippy. That's no improvement and that's no answer. All right. I uh, saw you inside making with the big talk, so I says to myself, he's an interested party. I should look him up. Maybe we can do business together. All right, stay over there. What kind of business? I'm particular about the gutters I crawl in. It has to do with the twins inside there. You can get in touch with me later for further details. I got an angle, mister. You'll see when I leave. Yeah? When you tried to work that angle, you got to the wrong twin in the dressing room. Do you know that? I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, Sippy, where can I reach you? You'll find out if you really know what's up. <laughs> Don't try to follow me, though. I'll be seeing you. When Sippy slid out of the car and beat it, I made one move after him and then stopped cold. Because lying on the seat where he'd been sitting was a green leather handbag with the name Edie etched on it. I snapped it open. It had been stripped of everything but the scent of Amir and the smudged slip of paper that read Number 9 Arrow Motel, Lancashire Boulevard. So that was Sippy's address, and he had the stolen purse. But the why of all the commotion over 12 missing bucks was still the number one question mark. And I figured the best place for an answer to it was at Beth Tyler's. So I drove out to Hazeltine. But even before I stopped at number 4179, I heard the piano. I walked to the door and stood there a moment listening. I eased it open. Slipped inside. Soft, indirect lighting accented the figure of a girl at the piano. The little waves of iridescent crimson chased themselves over the smooth, satin gown as she played. Glossy, blue-black hair fell to her shoulders. The side of her burning cigarette sent a single plume of smoke into the still air. Just for a moment, I found it difficult to remember that she was my client. <clears throat> You're, you're looking better, Beth. You're Philip Marlowe, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I dropped by to return your glove, among other things. Just put it there on the table for the other one. Where did you get it, Marlowe? In your dressing room at the club. 
Your sister tangled with an unidentified man who was hiding there after you left. While we're on that, why'd you shove off so fast? I was scared. How'd you know I'd find you? You're a detective. Remember? Mm-hmm. Look, if you want to burn up your retainer playing hide-and-seek, it's your business. Now, who's the guy you want me to check on? The flabby one who made you blow up tonight? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Why? Because I think my sweet twin sister is mixed up in something a little more serious than her usual scatterbrain escapades. Hmm. And the flabby guy is in on it because he has a green purse, right? How did you know that? He left it with me. Name is Sippy. He lives at the Arrow Motel, number nine. Knows something worthwhile about this business, and he's anxious to sell it. All of which puts him a hop, skip, and a jump ahead of your detective. Now, tell me, why is everybody, including Neil Redmond, all wound up over one stolen purse? What's it all about, baby? I don't know, baby. Suppose you find out and tell me. Wouldn't have anything to do with the fact that Neil loves your sister and you love Neil, would it? Marlowe, I hired you to investigate a man, not to pry into my personal affairs. You'll get more for your money if I stop holding out on me. It's my money. Besides, I'm not holding out. Believe me. I'll try real hard. Well, as soon as I've got something, I'll call you. Where are you going now? My retainer entitles me to know, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. First to the club to find Redmond and get his side of it, and then... I'll probably drop in on our chum, Sippy, at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire. Good. I'll uh, keep a light in the window for you. Oh, sweet. <laughs> also keep your door locked. From the inside, baby. As I drove down the dark, winding street toward Ventura Boulevard, I caught a flash in the rearview mirror of a station wagon behind me. It looked like a tail, so I opened up. But it stayed with me. When it swung out into the left lane to pass, it suddenly cut in front of me. I jammed on the brakes as a spotlight slashed at my eyes, and when my front wheel banged against the curb, I was already half out of the car. Stop right where you are, fella. Don't come one inch closer, I'll drop you. I switched off the spotlight, and I saw a face the texture of a doormat over an embroidered purple shirt and orange tie. He had hand-tooled high-heeled boots on and was topped off by a ten-quart cream-colored Stetson. But the doormat face was grim, and the silver-barreled cold pistol in his hand looked right at home. Followed you up here from the saddle club. I don't know what your game is or why you're messing around and what don't concern you, but I aim to find out mighty quick, so start talking. Okay. First, I resent being crowded off the road. Second, I resent a spotlight in my face. And third, I don't like pistols pointed at my stomach. So cool off, Jesse James. You're wasting your time and mine. You got it wrong there, friend. Paul Cedar don't waste his time, and you're going to find that out. Paul Cedar? Huh? Yeah. Don't tell me you're all excited over a stolen purse with 12 bucks in it. Twelve dollars? Yeah. Listen, clown, there's thirty grand missing somewhere between Redman and me, and I'm going to get it. Thirty thousand? Yeah. Redman's a high roller, and that's okay with me. But he lost it fair and square in my joint over in Nevada, and I've been holding his markers much too long. So if I have to chalk that dough off to experience, it's going to be a pretty unpleasant experience for a certain party. Get me? Yeah, I get you. But you're shoving the wrong way, Longhorn. Somebody's trying to make a fool out of me, bright boy. And I don't stand for that. I'm liable to shove a lot of ways. And hard. So don't get underfoot. Uh, you're sure to get stepped on. So long, dude. In just a moment, we'll return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first... Tomorrow marks the anniversary of an important event in American history, the signing of the first peace treaty between the Indians and the Plymouth colonists. In commemoration of these events, CBS's Sunday night stars, Amos and Andy, will be found with a kingfish burying the hatchet deeper than ever in their hopes and dreams. And CBS's own Jack Benny will be back again tomorrow with his special guest, Van Johnson. Invite some friends over. Sit back and enjoy the Jack Benny program. You can hear Amos and Andy every Sunday on most of these same CBS network stations and Jack Benny over them all. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Dancing Hands. When the Texan from Nevada galloped off in his trusty station wagon... I forgot all about Neil Redmond and headed instead for Sippy and his further details at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire. 
where Bungalow 9 turned out to be an all-alone green and white collection of clapboard that showed light, a half-open door, and nobody home to my knock. When I tried knuckles on wood again and still got only a faint echo for reply, I stepped inside. There in the center of an ivory-white throw rug and clamoring for attention like an only child at a family reunion was a wide and wet circle of red. From there, the ugly splotches that narrowed as they got farther away trailed off until, finally, in the next room, the path ended where I expected it to. The quiet form of Skippy, sprawled over an upset chair and holding his hands tight against the red on his left side. When I got to him, he was going fast. Thirty grand. A lot of dough. Didn't know I was shooting that high. And the, the twins... One what, Sippy? One of them. Did one of them do this? One. He's dead, isn't he, Marlowe? Yeah. Yeah, Redmond, he's very dead. Oh, no, Marlowe. I only found him a few seconds before you did. Yeah, and the rest of that run, you heard someone coming, you didn't want to be seen, so you ducked back out of sight, huh? I don't buy it, Redmond, because for one thing, it's too pat. For another, how do you explain being here in the first place? Come on, fast. Okay, I'm here because I'm on a nasty jam. Like what? Like $30,000 I've got to pay in the next hour to a guy named Paul Cedar who's running out of patience in a hurry, believe me. About that I do. I've already met the gentleman. But right now, Redmond, we're talking about Sippy. Okay. Last night I had things to do, so I gave Edie Tyler the money for the payoff to Cedar. A couple of minutes after she stepped out of the club, somebody roughed her up and got away with a purse and the 30 grand. You're a liar, Redmond. Edie herself told me that purse only had 12 bucks in it. How come? Simple like, Marlowe. In my business, you never yell copper too soon or too loud. It doesn't pay. Mm-hmm. Now look, for the third time, Redmond, you and Sippy, how do you figure? I don't know. He was at the club tonight, acting funny. When he left, I got a glimpse of Edie's green purse sticking out of his topcoat pocket. Later on, I saw him run away from the car near the club, so I followed him. I ended up here a couple of minutes behind him, and that model was a truth, I swear. Would you do at the drop of a... Hey, wait a minute. Look, if you're telling the truth, I begin to get a different picture. And by that, I specifically mean a very talented but very sly dame named Beth Tyler. Oh, no, Marlo. Why not? Because you love Beth's sister? Face it, Redmond, it doesn't add up any other way. Sippy here couldn't have stolen that purse from Edie. If he did, he'd have taken his dough and blown, not spent his time putting out feelers... But on the other hand, if Sippy happened to see Beth take it from Edie, empty it and toss it away, we've got another story, right? Yeah. Because he wouldn't make a move until he knew how much he had gotten away with. Exactly. But there he ran into trouble because he was trying to get close to Beth. And in doing that, he got mixed up and went for Edie instead, like tonight at the club. Sure. And the dying man's words just now about one twin. To which you can add the unpleasant fact that I personally ran off at the mouth when I was up at Beth's an hour ago. She knew where to come for Sippy. Look, Redmond, it's got to run that way. I'm sure of it. Well, maybe you're right, Phil, but right or wrong, I'm still in the jam. So if you don't have any objections, I'm going back to my club now for a last try at raising that money again before Cedar shows. You mean you're going to face him, Neil, with or without her? I've got a model. You see, I own a fast club, all right, and I gamble a lot, too. But I don't welch on my markers no more than I knock over flabby little guys. You know what I mean, Phil? I think so. But don't fold now, Neil, because... I might still be lucky enough to catch up to Beth Tyler and your money both before your time runs out. And right now that means fast to a phone and a call to Edie who might know which way a runaway twin would head. I'll see you, Neil. The nearest phone was at an all-night mobile gas station a block away. As I dialed Edie's number, a thought hit me. Maybe Beth wouldn't head anywhere. Maybe she'd just stick around. <laughs> Hello? Edie, this is Marlowe. Seen anything of Beth? No, I haven't. But why? What is it, Marlowe? Well, from where I stand, two things. First, your sister has the $30,012 that was in your purse last night. Oh? And second, she's just about it for a sloppy around the edges murder. Oh. Now, look, have you any idea where Beth would head if she had to get out of town in a hurry? No, I don't, Marlowe. Oh, well, maybe somebody up around her place does. I'll call you later. Marlowe, wait. Are are you sold on this? I mean, about the things you said Beth did? Just about, Edie. But for your sake, let's hope I'm wrong. All the way, honey. Goodbye. (laughs) 
Driving fast back toward Beth's place on Hazeltine still left me enough time to think about a not-too-small detail that I'd completely overlooked. Thanks to me, the entire Los Angeles Police Department knew nothing about what was going on in and around the Saddle Club. Five minutes later, when I'd parked away from the dock and obviously deserted number 4179, I'd walked back and around to a pair of uncurtained French doors at the side. I knew that oversight is what is generally called a blunder. But in the next second, I knew it was nothing compared to the one I was making currently. If you so much as turn your head again, Marlowe, I'll kill you. Not like you did Sippy, please, Beth. I'd hate to go that way. Sippy was a mistake, Marlowe, believe me. I was rushed. So you shot and ran, huh? Yes. But I didn't run too far. Because from where I stood, I could hear and see both you and Redmond and talking the whole thing over. And when you knew that we'd caught on to your act, you decided to follow me and see where I was going before you made your next move. Is that it? Exactly. Now get inside. Go on, the door's unlocked. Mm. All right. Now get over there, near that closet, and don't turn around. Why not? Afraid of the look on my face when you shoot? Shut up, Marlowe. And stop being brave. Because unless I have to, I'm not going to kill you. After all, you've already served your purpose. Which I presume was getting mixed up in this mess just long enough to find out about Sippy for you. You presume correctly. Mm -hmm. Also, you talk too much. Now open that closet and get inside. All right. Go on. As you say. But first, baby, one question. Did you do all this for the 30 grand alone? Or does it tie in with Neil Redmond and the way he feels about your sister, Reedy? It's a little bit of each, Marlowe. But as I said, you talk too much. So get in there and shut up. Getting out of Beth Taylor's half-inch thick oak closet was like arguing with an umpire. You couldn't be subtle. So 20 tiring minutes went by and the heels on both my feet were numb before the paneling finally gave in and I was out and over to the telephone to put in a call to the police. It should have been made a long time ago. But then, even as I was halfway through dialing the numbers, I saw something on an end table nearby that made me slowly change my mind. It was the two black gloves that Beth wore in the Dancing Hands Act. And while I stared at them like they were alive and beckoning, I thought hard for what must have been a full minute. And then suddenly I knew that my next stop had to be the Saddle Club. As I parked at the Saddle Club, I saw light drifting out of Neil's office, which was something I had expected. Inside, I moved along a dark hall toward what I knew would be the trio of Neil Redmond, the Nevada Texan, and Eddie Tyler. All right, Redmond. The raucous voice of Paul Cedar was anything but happy. How stupid you think I am? Oh, oh, Cedar, I'm telling the truth. Edie had the 30 grand, but somebody got it from her when she was on her way to you. That's a stinking line. You know it, Redmond. You never had the money. This whole thing's been a frame to stall me. And one way or another, I'm going to get you to admit that. No, you're not, Cedar. Uh, and if you don't drop that gun now, you're never going to do anything ever. Come on, let it go. Uh, All right. Now sit down and shut up and listen hard because Redmond's telling you the truth. What? Paulo, you know where the money is? That's right. And I also know who took it. Less than an hour ago, a little after I called you, Edie, Beth caught up to me and confessed the whole shebang, exactly as we figured it, Neil. You mean she admitted getting the money from Edie and using you to locate Sippy? That's right. But there's only one drawback to everything she admitted. None of it's true. What do you mean, Marlowe? I mean, Cedar, that Beth Tyler didn't steal your money from Edie here any more than she killed Sippy. I also mean that as far as I can tell, Beth Tyler was nothing more than a girl who played the piano and got upset when a stranger named Sippy started to bother her. And I never saw the real Beth Tyler after she ran away from a piano in the club tonight. That she's dead and that you, Edie, have been posing as Beth all night because, one, you yourself stole Neil's money and, two, you murdered your sister as well. No! Yes, Edie, come on, admit it, it's true. No, no, it isn't. I... I guess it isn't that, Marlowe. In Beth's body? In our dressing room. In the closet. I didn't want to kill her. But she found out that I had only pretended to be robbed when there was no one around. And that Sippy had seen me scream and get rid of the purse myself. Sippy, who was only trying to muscle in on a deal, went to her by mistake, huh? Yes. That's how she knew what I'd done. When she confronted me in the dressing room, just before you came in, and said that she wouldn't stand by and let me do a thing like that to Neil, I lost my temper. You killed her, Edie. Yes, I did, Neil. And when Marlowe showed up after a scream, I said that someone had attacked me. And then I pretended to be both Beth and myself from there on to get out of the whole thing. 
And I... I almost did. But... But now I'm so sorry. Bad hours went by before the police had everybody's story, and Paul Cedar and the 30,000 was gone for Nevada, and Edie was gone for good. That left just Neil Redman and me alone and standing near the main bar in the club. Neil was doing his best to stay all in one piece. Well, Marlowe, it's been a tough night for you, hasn't it? Yeah, but a tougher one for you, Neil. What with Cedar and the money and the girls, Marlowe? Yeah. Yeah. They used to came out right before the cowboy got too tough, thanks to you. <laughs> So tell me, Phil, how'd you know that Beth was dead and that Edie was both people all along? That was a couple of gloves, Neil, the ones they wore in their dancing hands act. You see, when I first met Edie in the dressing room, she was wearing hers, and one of Beth's was on the floor. Hey, pour me one, will you? Yes, yes. Okay. I took it, and later when I met what I thought was Beth's, I returned it, and she put it with what we both thought was its mate. There you are. Thanks. But a little while ago, when I got close to the gloves again, I saw that that couldn't be, that they were both for the left hand, Neil. Ah, then when Edie went to Beth's place to pass herself off as her sister, who she had already killed, she was smart enough to know that she should have only one glove around. Yeah, but not smart enough to think about which glove it should be. And there I worked backwards. Until you got to the three of us at the club and tried what you knew might be the right answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you were right, Phil, all the way. Yeah, but I was still gambling. If I had been wrong, Neil, I was giving the real Beth a long head start. Mm. It's always that way when you gamble, Phil. I know. Sometimes you pick right, sometimes wrong. Cards, mm -hmm. dice. <laughs> Even with twins. Good night, fella. When I finally got to my car, started out of the valley and back toward Hollywood. It was better than 8 o'clock in the morning. And here and there as I drove, I... I saw people who I'd never heard of and who, well, who'd never heard of me, stumbling outside after their morning papers. And I got to wondering what they were going to think when they read about a girl who had killed both her twin sister in a nightclub and a flabby guy in a motel who wasn't much good. Well, it was hard to say. And for myself, I was too tired to think. Or maybe I just didn't want to. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Lou Krugman, Ed Begley, Paul Fries, and Bert Holland. The special music is by Richard Oran. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... When it started, it was simple. Just a lawsuit for damages. But before it was over, it was far from simple, and the damages were murder. All because of a red-headed woman, a ghostwriter with ambition and a match that burned with a bright green flame. <laughs> With part of its star-studded Sunday nights devoted to shows named after great personalities such as Jack Benny, Lum and Abner, and Amos and Andy, CBS also goes to famous fiction for one of the brightest, most dramatic of its Sunday galaxy, The Adventures of Sam Spade. Created by the master hand of Dashiell Hammett, Sam Spade cuts a new and deadly caper with mystery, murder, and adventure on most of the same CBS network stations every Sunday. Join him tomorrow night. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, 
like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. When it started, it was simple, just a lawsuit for damages. But before it was over, it was far from simple, and the damages were murder. All because of a red-headed woman, a ghostwriter with ambition, and a match that burned with a bright green flame. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Green Flame. It had been the kind of early start, late finish, crowded in between day that had made breakfast coffee, lunch a ham sandwich on the run, and dinner nothing. So by the time it finally ended, it was pushing nine o'clock. I was both a little tired and a lot hungry. All of which made the feast I could imagine spread out in front of me over an emerald green tablecloth something better than good enough to eat. Blue Point oysters on a half shell, a Caesar salad. Veal scallopini topped with mushrooms the size of silver dollars. Oh, I was ready for it. Yes. Yes, well, the oysters once again became a blue ashtray. The scallopini notebook. The green cloth underneath all... My desk blotter. Hello, Marlowe speaking. Dodie Whitmore, Marlowe. Ever hear of me? I have. I've also heard you own half a dozen screen magazines, a local radio station, and a daily published for the motion picture industry called The Hollywood Trades. Is that covered? Not quite. Today I acquired something else. A libel suit for 100000 that was just slapped against the trades by a has-been actor named Bradford Colby, which, Marlowe, is the reason I'm calling you. Oh? So drop whatever you're doing, boy, and get over here to the Whitmer Building. Whitmer Building? We're on El Centro near Gower and closed tomorrow Sunday, no addition. Biggest. When the night watchman lets you in, turn left, keep walking till you get to an office number 116. You got that? Yeah, 116. But if you don't mind, Miss Whitmer, I'd like to do something. I'd like to eat first. Make it coffee and a ham sandwich at the outside and get over here fast. Coffee? Look, Miss Whitmer, I'm starving. Hello. You... How much do you get a day? 25 in expenses. Why? I'm willing to pay 125, and you keep track of the expenses. Now what do you say, boy? Boy says coffee and a ham sandwich will leave him stuffed. Goodbye, Miss Whitmire. Come in, Marlowe. Sit down over here, and if you smoke cigars, don't. I can't stand them. Drink? No, thanks. Marlowe, our A1 gossip columnist, Stanley McGrath, had this to say in today's edition of The Trade. Mm-hmm. The sometimes actor, Bradford Colby, won't call it quits. When refused a part by an independent producer who's short on funds, Colby offered to hawk all and come up with 20000 if the producer would change his mind. The producer wouldn't. End of quote. And beginning of noise from Colby, huh? Yes, a clamor that we can only silence by proving that McGrath, what he said, is true. Which shouldn't be impossible, because Max was a thorough man and never heard of the word rumor. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean, was a thorough man? He died of a stroke, Marlowe. At five this morning, en route to the hospital, age 61. Mm. His column, as usual, arrived here yesterday afternoon in the mail. He always wrote from his home, which is a junk-filled cracker box, upon North Brunton. And now you're being sued by Colby for damages, huh? The late Mr. McGrath isn't around to prove what he said is true. You catch. And being very unpopular with producers myself these past 30 years, Marlowe, <laughs> I have no chance of any help from the one who actually turned Colby down for that part. Whoever he is. All of which makes my job what? Precisely this. Fine Mac source of information. Come in, Larry. Larry North, Marlowe. 
My editor and anybody's Napoleon. Larry, meet Mr. Marlowe. Uh, how do you do? How do you do? Doty, I've just found out that old Max, only Lakeman, a queer duck named Leonard Phipps, left town sometime yesterday for San Diego. May or may not be back by now. Where's Marlowe going to start? Well, I figured... At old Max's place. Larry and I have already checked there, Marlowe. 8312 North Bronson. Maybe you'll grab onto something that we overlooked. Here's the key. Thanks. Mac lived alone. Don't get wrapped up in his notes. They're gibberish. And remember, my lawyers are sure that we lose this case if we can't prove what Mac said was the truth. Well, yeah, All as soon as you get a lead, and if I'm out, Larry will be in his office next door. And, Milo, don't waste any time. There's a lot at stake, boy. What Doty Whitmer had labeled a cracker box turned out to be a five-room, slightly beat-down, almost square house set back some 50 carelessly landscaped feet from a high stucco wall that said the late Mr. McGrath had lived alone and liked it. And when I entered and went to his study where I turned on a desk lamp, I saw what my client had meant by junk. There were the odds and ends that a man collects in a lifetime. On his desk, a tarnished loving cup for excellence in reporting, dated 1927. Beyond that, on the mantel, an autographed picture of Teddy Roseville, and next to it, a paperweight from Niagara Falls. And then... And then an item I hadn't expected... In a shadowed corner of the room, there was somebody else. A tall, gaunt somebody else wearing horn-rimmed glasses and papers sticking out of every pocket. He was slowly, an inch at a time, backing off from the edge of the circle of light in which I stood. I took one casual step toward the desk and then... Nailed him! Get your hands off me! Why? So you can start running, Mr. Leonard Phipps? How do you know my name? I'm psychic. I also know you just got back from San Diego. What I don't know is what you're doing here. Now, come on! Talk fast! Please let go. Leave me alone. I'll talk. Got nothing to hide from the right party. Who are you? Philip Marlowe, private detective, was working for Doty Whitmer, a lady impatient to know which producer McGrath was talking about. In that article on Colby this morning, now do I qualify? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Of course, we're both after the same piece of information, Mr. Marlowe. Oh? I want to find that answer, too, and then whisper it into Doty's ear. Just to save her 100000 bucks? No, just to get a chance to fill McGrath's shoes. And don't laugh, because I've been ghosting that column for the past month now. Didn't McGrath write this morning's column himself? No, he didn't. I did. But the piece on Colby was not mine. McGrath must have added that himself, the fool. Well, you don't sound like you're happy in your work, Phipps. I wasn't. Mac was a tyrant. I put up with him because he promised sooner or later to let Dodie Whitmar know that I was doing his work. Don't be too bitter, Phipps. Mac couldn't have known exactly when he was going to die. Well, what if he But to get die? back to the subject. Have you any idea where we can get a hold of something real to go on? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, out there in the living room. Oh. Follow me, Marlowe. If you can, in the dark. Come back here. Out. By the time I got to my feet, Phipps was gone. I found another lamp in the dark, turned it on, and started for the telephone. But then I stopped. In the center of the floor, where it must have fallen when the leg man made his wild break, was a wrinkled piece of paper. When I picked it up and turned it over, I was suddenly glad that Mr. Phipps had gotten away because, in his hurry to leave, he had dropped his checkoff list for Operation Bradford Colby. There were a half a dozen producers crossed off above the notation Max Place, but below that, and not yet discounted, was a name I'd never heard before, Sherry Sheldon. At that, I called Dodie Whitmer, gave her a quick rundown on what had happened with Phipps, and then tossed the name Sherry Sheldon in. She talked it over with Larry North before she answered. But when she did... I knew that finally we were all getting someplace. Marlo, this is good. Larry tells me that Sherry Sheldon is the ex-Mrs. Bradford Colby. Oh? And better than that, a redhead with temperament to match. That kind will talk. Mm-hmm. Any idea where this item lives? Yes, a bungalow on Sheremoya. 5800. 5800, huh? Larry says it's a quiet, dead-end street, but not to let that throw you. Because from what he's heard about the lady herself, she's very much alive. So play it smart, boy. You're probably in the big time now. Good luck. <laughs> long past the bungalow on Sheremoya, so when I pulled up and parked away from number 5800, I was still wondering exactly what play it smart boy meant. And the lady in question was known far and wide as a shock of red hair capping so much dynamite. But a minute later, as I walked toward the house, I labeled that thought introspection, dismissed it, and concentrated instead on an acre of tweed jacket that was unfolding out of a long, honey-colored sedan parked a little ahead of me. When it straightened up to something over six and a half feet, slammed the car door shut and stomped inch-thick sold brogans off in a king-sized hub, I knew that this was an angry man. And in the next second, I knew that it and the thespian Bradford Colby were one and the same. When Colby got to Sherry's doorbell and jabbed at it impatiently for attention, 
I ducked below a hedge nearby. When the door opened and then slammed shut again, I left the hedge in favor of an on-the-bias palm tree that bowed toward Milady's chamber where I could both see and hear what had to be an exciting reunion. You said that you knew something that couldn't fail to intrigue me on this of all days. So now that I'm here, start intriguing, Sherry, darling. All right. How's this for a starter? I want to the penny exactly one half of the money you're going to get from Dodie Whitmark. Oh, Sherry, how droll. <laughs> now, why in the name of the great American dollar do you think I'd give you so much as a sly glance at that delightful little fund? For two reasons. The first, I deserve it for putting up with both you and your abominable conceit for exactly one year. <laughs> Still droll, darling. <laughs> Go on, keep laughing, Mr. Colby. Keep laughing while I light my cigarette with one of these matches, these cute ones that burn with what? a green flame. Where did you get those? <laughs> In a little no- known lodge out beyond Malibu called the green flame. Don't you remember, darling, I-, I ran into you there one day last week when you were having lunch with a mysterious stranger whom you tried to keep me from seeing. You nasty little sneak, Sherry. When oh, you were so engrossed in keeping yourself between me and your guest that-, that you left the souvenir book of matches at the bar after you graciously lit my cigarette for me. What of it? They give those matches out by the thousands. That they do, but Brad, dear, they all don't have numbers penciled on the inside. Numbers? <laughs> What numbers are you talking about? Now, who's being drawn? What are you getting at, Sherry? This. I had a call a minute before I got in touch with you from a delightful gentleman who's very interested in what I'm getting at. So here, take your stupid book of matches and get out. No. I don't need them anymore. No, wait, Sherry, now please. I am going to have exactly one half of that easy money that's coming your way. And after the gentleman I mentioned and I get together, I may want more. But don't say anything you'll be sorry for later on. Oh, Just Sherry. get out now. And don't come back until I send for you, dear Brad. It was the better part of a minute before Colby the actor quit running the gamut of theatrical expressions indexed under hate, and Colby the man stopped biting down hard on his lower lip. Then, without another word, he slammed out of his apartment, ran to his car, and started off. I waited long enough for the steam in the room to condense, and then I walked to the front door and rang the bell delicately the way I imagined a delightful gentleman like Mr. Leonard Phipps might. Yes? Can I help you? I think so, Miss Sheldon. It's only a matter of a simple question. Did you give that Brad Colby story to McGrath yesterday? Wait a minute. Who are you? Why, Leonard Phipps, of course. I talked to you on the phone, remember? Oh. Oh, yeah. It was only half an hour ago, Mr. Phipps, and, and yet in those 30 minutes, it's surprising how your voice has gone from tenor right down to bass. Good night, Not so fast, baby. It's out of my shoe shine. All right. Come in. I, I'll tell you what you want to know. I did give that story to McGrath. I, I did it for revenge. I hate Colby. Uh-huh. And when your revenge boomeranged and the ex came out 100,000 ahead of you, you decided to cut back in, is that it? Yeah, that... Wait a minute. You've been listening. How else would you know all this about Brad and me? Same way I know you're a liar about giving McGrath that story. You're in, honey, is strictly something different like a book of matches that burn with a green flame and accidental meeting at the lodge of the same name. Let's take it from there. Huh? Yes, why don't you? Right outside where both you and it belong. Good night, mister. Marlowe, Marlowe, Philip Marlowe, Sherry. But tell me, why the hurry? Anxious to party your nose before Mr. Phipps arrives? Frankly, Philip... I'm anxious to do just about anything that doesn't involve talking to... What? What is it? Somebody's hit. Come on. He's over there near the curb. The car didn't stop, Marlo. No, and that scream sounded pretty... Pretty bad. Oh, Oh, he's... Dead, isn't he, Marlo? Yeah. That can mean only one thing to you, baby. To me? Why, who, who is it? Your late date, Sherry. One Mr. Leonard Phipps... In just a moment, the second act of the adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, on the special program, One Great Hour, later tonight on CBS, President Harry S. Truman will be joined by Gregory Peck, Ida Lupino, and Quentin Reynolds to tell the story of what American religious groups are doing to bring relief to the world's war-stricken people. Be sure to hear One Great Hour tonight at 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time over most of these same CBS network stations. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Green Flame. 
red-haired, sophisticated eyes stared down at what seconds ago had been Leonard Phipps. The sound of the powerful car that had slammed the life out of him whirred into silence far down the street. All that was left of Stanley McGrath's overambitious leg man was a twisted, broken scarecrow, sprawled over the curb and half up on the sidewalk. It wasn't pretty. And the sight of it cracked Sherry's self-assurance like a rock through a window pane. When she stopped pressing the knuckles of one hand against her mouth and looked at me, she was scared. Clear through. Marla, this horrible thing, it was an accident, wasn't it? Oh, sure, sure. About as accidental as if they'd use a sledgehammer on him. Oh, oh yes. You only wish it was an accident because you're next in line and you know it. Remember, he was on his way to see you when this happened to him. I don't know what you mean. I mean, it's a high-priced game, baby, and they're playing for keeps. So you better level with me and fast. What's so important about those green matches? I don't know. You're a liar. You're going to wind up looking like Phipps here before the sun comes up. No, no, And tell me the truth, you little fool. Come on. I am, I swear. Phipps called me because he, he thought I might have given McGrath that story on Brad, but I didn't. And why was Phipps still interested? Why do he want to talk to you? Because I, I told him I'd seen Brad with someone at the Green Flame last week, and, and that Brad was very upset when he found me there. All right, who is he with? I don't know. That's not the impression you gave your ex-husband, beautiful? I was swinging in the dark, Marlowe. Five people left the Green Flame at the same time. I, I, I couldn't tell which one had been with Brad, but... I'd know them if I saw them again, and Phipps thought that together we could figure out who it was. Go on. What about the numbers in that book of green matches? What were they? Eight, one, one. Eight, eleven? Yes. What does that fit? A hotel room? I don't know that either. You mean it was just another swing in the dark? Yes, but it connected, Marlowe. It scared him when I mentioned it, so it must be important. Yeah? Take another look at Phipps, baby. See how important it is. Now try again, real hard. Remember what eight, eleven means. Marlowe, I just don't know. Please believe me. Maybe you're just thick. Maybe you got too much nerve, but I'll tell you one thing, Sherry. I wouldn't be in your spot for ten times a hundred grand because I don't think you're going to live until morning. Oh, I didn't think that Brad would go this far. What, what, what I've told you is the truth. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Shut up. Somebody's coming. It might be Bradford. Now you get out of here. Well, I, I don't have my car. Take mine, that coupe. Here are the keys. Go down to the office of the Hollywood Trades. He won't show his face around there. Find Larry North or Dodie. Well, all right, but what about go you? Go on, will you beat it? I stepped into the shadows of the trees that bordered the walk and waited. I heard Sherry slam the door on my car and burn five bucks worth of rubber off my new fist tires getting away. A second later, the visitor I was expecting showed up, but it wasn't Brad Colby. It was Larry North. He ran three bustling steps out into the street and watched my coupe scoot out of sight. Then he spotted the corpse. His mouth fell open and he tiptoed slowly toward it like he was afraid he might wake it up. When I moved out into the light, he saw me and turned. Uh, Marlow! Do you know about this? Who is it? It's Leonard Phipps. Phipps? McGrath's leg man? Yeah. Driver didn't so much as look back. What a stinking break. Phipps in a hit and run accident at a time like this. Look, you jump to your conclusions north, and I'll jump to mine. Eh? What do you mean? Phipps knew something fishy about that item in McGrath's column. And Sherry Sheldon knew something fishy about Colby. So from where I stand, Colby couldn't afford to let them get together. No accident? That's a daring observation, Marlow. For a hundred thousand bucks, I know plenty of guys who do a thing like this every day in the week. You can buy a lot of distance with that kind of money. Hey, you're right, of course. What exactly does the Sheldon girl know? Did you find out? Only partly. Bradford's mixed up with someone else on this deal. Sherry doesn't know who, but if we can get the other tie-in, she'll be able to identify that person on sight. Yeah. Well, did she... Did she have, have anything else? Number 811 in the book of matches. Mean anything? 811... Hey, no, hey, no, hey, no. hey, come on, North. Quit hey. staring at him. You're making yourself sick. Let's get out of here. Yes, yes, all right. I guess I'd better. Bradford Colby must be out of his mind. Maybe. I'll let you know. I'm going to drop in on him now before the cops do and check my theory over with him. Where does he live? Yeah, on Wilcox, a villa in the Midcliff Gardens. Marlowe, I'm going in and talk to Sherry. Maybe I can find out who Colby's working with. Uh, she's not here. I sent her down to the paper in my car to stay with you or Dodie until things yes, cool off. Yes, but Dodie isn't there. She went out for some reason right after you called. There's no one there now but the night watchman. Oh, great. <clears throat> now, look. Drop me off at Colby's place, and you get down there and find Sherry. She's worth 100000 bucks to Dodie Whitmer, but only if she lives. Now, let's go. While the natty little Napoleon in the elevator scurried off to fetch his car, I ran inside. Put a fast call through to the police and submitted the shortest report on record of a hit-and-run death. By the time I got back, North was waiting at the curb with the door open. Piled in beside him, and ten minutes later, we glided to a stealthy stop on Wilcox at the ivy-covered archway over the Midcliff Garden Gate. Neat slices of amber light poured through a big Venetian blind on the window of a villa at the rear of the court. Miss North identified as Colby's. 
And the same breath reminded me that the actor was a strapping 6'6 and a desperate man. He urged me to be careful, and I urged him to hurry. And as he left, I walked toward the big window and saw Bradford inside, slumped deep in the lap of a suede easy chair, doing a solo with a bottle of Paul Masson champagne, and looking about as desperate as a sleepy St. Bernard. I walked around to the front door, decided to try the shock treatment to blast him out of his blasé attitude. Yes, what do you want? Get inside. Go on, move. Take your hands off me. You might have gotten away with that swept up suit for damages, Colby, but you're not going to get away with murder. You killed Leonard Phipps, didn't you? What are you raving about? Who's Leonard Phipps and who are you? Name's Marlowe, and I'll tell you something, Colby. The only reason I'm not busy knocking your head off at this minute is because I want to hear the whole story right from the top. Now, first, who wrote that item in McGrath's column for you? Are you mad? McGrath wrote it himself, the venomous little creature. He and Donnie Whitmer used that to damage my reputation, and now they're going to pay for it. Oh, stop it. You knocked your reputation into a cock's head every time you step in front of a camera. Well, Your I... damage suits are phony, and you know it. Now, where's that book of matches with the famous 811 inside? 811? Eight... Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh, yes. Those that burn with a green flame. Yes, right, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, You've been talking yes. with my imaginative ex-wife, I see. She's burning with quite a green flame herself, isn't she? How that woman hates to see me get a... Never mind. Where is it? If you'll allow me, Marlowe, I'll just answer this. Mm. Bradford Colby speaking. Mm. I see. Yes, I heard. That's right. Well, I'll do my best, darling. At least ten. Now, goodbye, Helen. Just an old friend, Marlowe. You can let your eyebrow down again. Helen, huh? You know, you always were a lousy actor. I'm getting a little sick of you, Colby. And I've got a hunch I'm due for quite a stall, so start talking, huh? Where's that book of matches? Easy, Marlowe. Take it easy. Here it is. Come on, let's see it. Of course. Here, take a good look. Oh! <clears throat> what a character. Up to your chin in trouble and you make way. Lousy snoop! Oh! <clears throat> that does it. Tough guy. You're not leaving, Marlow. You're staying right here. And just to make sure... Oh, you don't call me. You sucker. Should have loosened your corset. I waded through the chunks of glazed ceramics that Kobe had smashed on my head and worked hard to hold back the the wave of darkness that kept rising up under me until I made it to the kitchen where I splashed a few quarts of cold water on my face. Then I went back. Colby was still holding down the hooked rug he landed on, and the book of matches that had started the argument was on the floor beside him. I picked it up and opened it. The number was there, inside, written in blue wax pencil. But I thought I'd made a mistake. Until I realized that maybe Sherry Sheldon had made the mistake. When that idea hit me, it brought another one along, and I remembered that Colby had received orders by phone to delay me. Then I knew I'd better hang onto my head and move, but fast. I rolled him over and found the keys to his car. He was halfway out the door when he came to. Uh, stop! Come back. You can't leave here. It's my exit, not yours, Hambone. Good night. It took all of five minutes to get from Wilcox to El Centro in Colby's long, honey-colored sedan. And on a hunch, I drove down the alley to the back door of the Whitmer building. The hunch paid off. Because I had stopped and turned on the parking lights. When the door opened and I saw exactly what I'd expected. The watchman was on the floor out cold. And the little Napoleon in elevated shoes was staging a big exodus with his arms full of a very limp redhead named Sherry Sheldon. As soon as he saw the honey-colored car, he started talking. Brad! Brad, you idiot! I told you to stay home! To do it! No, she's only unconscious. There wasn't time. We'll have to finish it someplace else. Put her in the back seat. All right. Here. Now let's get out. Marble! Don't move, little man. I'm too tired for any more trouble. I'll shoot first. So you're the boy on the inside with all the brains, huh? You cooked this whole thing up with Colby. He gets libel and sues Dodie Whitmer for damages, and then you two split the settlement between you. Correct me if I'm wrong, North. You got your chance when McGrath died after turning in his copy. All you had to do was write that one libelous item included in McGrath's column, and nobody could ever explain where the story had come from. That stupid fool, Bradford. I could never trust him to do anything right. Is that why you killed Phipps? Yes. And if Brad Colby had held on to you for another five minutes... I would have had time to get out of here. Yes, and so would I. Sherry, are you all right? No, not yet. Hey, hey, oh! Where he and Brad are going, Marlowe, I'd never get another chance to even the score. Oh, baby. (sighs) 
You handle a spiked heel like Babe Ruth handled a bat. <laughs> He's out. Yeah, but Phil, you should see where what he hit me with. Oh, brother. <laughs> Come on, beautiful. It's time to turn out the lights, get in touch with Dodie, and call the law. Let's go. Hey, thank you, Mr. McMahon. Good night. Good night. I'm glad those cops and the cigars are gone. Here, kids, help yourselves. You both look like you need it. This you can say again. How I need it. (laughs) Marlo, you could have slid me through the hole in the lifesaver when you said my own editor, Larry North, was it. Yeah, it gave me a jolt, too, Dodie. Yeah, and me. (laughs) The hard way. But, Phil, I am sorry about that mistake I made. I could have saved us some trouble. What mistake is this? Well, you see, honey, we knew that whoever was working with Colby had written down a number for him in a book of matches. Sherry here thought it was 811. But when I saw it, it was upside down from that, so it came out 118. 118? Mm-hmm. Why, that's Larry's office number and phone extension. Check. Yours is 116, and his was right next door. I remembered. So, 118 was it. That, coupled with the fact that it was written in blue pencil, which is standard equipment for all editors, gave me the tip. Honest now, Phil. Hmm? Did you figure that out, or was it luck? Uh, well, it's a trade secret. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know something? I missed dinner tonight. You know huh? I'm starving? Well, uh, I know a wonderful place. Uh-huh. They have uh, matches like this, uh-huh. see? It burns with a green flame. Will you join us, Dodie? Yes, yes, we uh, would love to have you. You'd rather have whooping calls. <laughs> Go on, you. Get out of here and good night. Good night, Dodie. Oh, and it will be from here on in. I guarantee it. A wonderful supper was waiting for us at the Green Flame Restaurant. It was all arranged by a call from Dodie. And it waited until it got cold because we didn't show up to eat it. There was something about the moonlight glinting on the ocean. And a certain stillness in the morning air that made food seem somehow unimportant. So when I finally dropped Sherry off at her place on Sherimoya, went home to my apartment on Franklin, it was either very late... Or very early, depending on the viewpoint. There was just one lonely sardine and a cold baked potato in the refrigerator. So I ate. Then I sat down on my bed to light my last cigarette. But I wasn't disappointed when the match flared into an ordinary yellow flame. Good night, Phil. Happy Marlowe. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Faye Baker, Larry Dabkin, Myra Marsh, Howard McNear, and Parley Bear. The special music is by Richard O'Runt. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It was a grim joke that started when six heirs came to an ugly house on a rain-swept island to hear a madman's will. But the joke soon turned to murder. And in the end, it was hard to tell who had the last laugh. Tomorrow night, Helen Hayes stars in the famous comedy The Farmer Takes a Wife on CBS's Electric Theater. And Eve Arden stars as America's favorite schoolmistress, Our Miss Brooks. You'll delight in the expert comedy of these two great feminine stars when The Electric Theater and Our Miss Brooks come your way tomorrow night over most of these same CBS network stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations.
This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.